This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by GEA. Around the world, every second liter of beer is brewed with the aid of systems and processes from GEA because their solutions address even the smallest details of the brewing process. GEA's range of services include everything from engineering, manufacturing, delivery, installation, automation, servicing, and more. At GEA, their goal is to help brewers make more beer of the highest quality in a cost-efficient and sustainable manner. To learn more, visit GEA.com and be sure to follow the GEA Craft Brewing page on Facebook. Hey everybody, it's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I want to get right into it because my guest today is Ken Grossman, and if you don't know who he is, well, shame on you, but he is the founder of the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, established in 1980, and his passion for good beer began when a friend showed him the basics of home brewing, he began brewing five-gallon batches of beer on his own, and soon became a proficient home brewer. 1976, Ken opened his own store, The Homebrew Shop, and soon after began building a small brewery in the town of Chico, California. You all know that as Sierra Nevada. And Ken, thanks for being here. Well, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. I want to jump into some of those early days of home brewing. Um, because it, with your brewery in Chico, with the brewery in Mills River, um, it, it's so mind-bogglingly big. You're the third largest craft brewer in the country right now. Um, uh, by the BA definition. Do, do you miss the old days of just firing up the stove and doing five gallons at a time? You know, we, uh, we, we've since sort of recreated some of those small batch options. So I have a, uh, a nano brewery in Chico that uh, brews about a half barrel, so uh, less than 15 <laughs> gallons, and we fire that up um, many times a week. We're actually brewing on the, the nano on a regular basis, and then we uh, probably 15 years ago, I built a 10-barrel brewery in Chico, which was the same size I started Sierra Nevada with, uh, 300-gallon batches, and we used that one all the time. And then when we built Mills River, we included a 20-barrel brew house. And so I'm, I'm involved in a lot of the R&D uh, projects we meet every week. We go over concepts. We, uh, we brew test batches all the time. So uh, I still get a, a chance to be involved in, in creating new beers and working with the team on... Um, developing concepts for the future and keeping things exciting. You know, that's an interesting thing, the concepts for the future. Uh, so, uh, Hazy Little Thing is the new IPA that's out right now. Uh, we're in New York City right now in the lobby of the Ace Hotel because last night the Brewers Association held a media dinner and you poured a Hazy Little Thing for uh, the, the assembled masses, as it were. Uh, but you made a, a pretty clear point to say that this is not a New England IPA. Right. Um, can we get into that a little bit? Because that's, that seems what everybody's chasing right now is, is this haze and chasing... Uh, this, this one particular aesthetic, this one particular look for the beer, uh, and, and coming out with something that's called Hazy Little Thing and having it be an IPA, yep. the natural assumption would be New England IPA. So why aren't you classifying it as such? Um, so I guess just to go back a little bit in history, so when I first uh, started brewing commercially in 1980, um, we really had some pretty hazy beers. And uh, our consumer back in those days was really not used to seeing a beer that had... Uh, uh, well, that you couldn't see through, essentially. 
and so uh, we did what we could to figure out how to stabilize the beer. And back in those days, the haze was coming from, uh, in some cases, high-protein malt. We were uh, having to use malts that were really produced for uh, adjunct lager brewing, so they had a higher level of protein than uh, an ideal uh, English-style uh, pale malt, malt, but or even a, a German style for that. Uh, so we figured out how to do that through mashing and uh, eventually started filtering because we would have this very variability in our haze. It wasn't as if we were consistently hazy. And we were bottle conditioning, and, and so we had that uh, uh, also causing uh, various cloudiness issues at times. And so uh, we got a lot of flack, and um, so we've uh, uh, you know, ended up treating our pale ale in a manner that we still have yeast in it, it's still bottle conditioned, but we've really done a lot to clean up that haze. Well, now that people are starting to, I think, appreciate the fact that beers can uh, not be clear and bright, and uh, leaving some of the proteins in, leaving some of the yeast in does contribute to uh, some mouthfeel, some roundness. Uh, and so we've been actually making uh, some cloudy styles for many, many years. Um, so we wanted Cloudy styles of IPA, though? Cloudy styles of IPA, okay. yeah, totally unfiltered. And, and even going to our torpedo, which isn't cloudy, uh, but it's not filtered either, so um, that's a beer that uh, we're really relying on just cold conditioning to remove some of the proteins by settling, but we don't do any chill proofing uh, as far as adding uh, agents to remove those proteins. And so occasionally it can throw a little haze, and our celebration is the same thing. We don't do any overly aggressive treatment to remove that. So we have hazy batches of, of those at times based on the malts we're using. But we have done some IPAs over the years, um, not widely distributed, that did have oats and wheat in them, and they did have a natural haze to them. So when we were looking at a, uh, a beer that we felt comfortable producing on a national basis, trying to have a lot of yeast present in the beer um, is, is tough from a uh, consistency of look. And uh, as the beer sits in somebody's refrigerator, if it's a beer that's got a lot of yeast uh, that contributes to its haze, it'll settle out. It'll start to uh, ligulate and, and precipitate into larger chunks, and, and uh, sometimes it can be uh, unattractive to the consumer. So when we wanted to come up with the hazy little thing, we really relied on the natural proteins to create the haze. And so uh, we are using wheat malt and oats uh, in a pretty high percentage, and those do have proteins that uh, don't settle out readily, and so the beer stays hazy from those uh, ingredients, but not necessarily from a lot of yeast that's in the, in the container. And most of the real hazy English style, or excuse me, the um, East Coast styles do have a very high amount of yeast loading in them. Yeah. Uh, and they're great when consumed fresh, when the yeast is still in suspension, uh, but as that yeast starts to autolyze and settle, uh, it will create different looks and, and flavors as, as it matures. So not as stable of a style. So we didn't want to have a beer with lots and lots of yeast in it that we would have to have varying uh, levels of, of consumer um, concerns when it, it does so well. So I, I'm curious about that, right? Because in the past, having a, a perfectly clear beer was a badge of honor, I think, for, for, for brewers. And now um, the consumers, or at least a segment of the consumer base, really wants uh, hazy beer. That's, I, don't give me that clear beer. Give 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 me the haze. Um, but but more than that, that, the fact that a lot of these aren't shelf stable, that they're not built for the long term, it's a throwback to the early days where beer had to be consumed fresh. Um, uh, it, it, processes and technology have allowed beer to be more shelf stable uh, um, for a while. 
Where's the balance for for the beer drinker these days between something that can be shipped across the country and still taste fresh versus something that if you don't drink it within a week from a small tap room, uh, it's it's gone to pot. Yeah, uh, not to denigrate uh, any anybody's beer or brewing styles, but um, you know one of the things we've strived for for years and years is to make as great of a, a natural condition beer that was uh, consistent and flavor stable and. Uh, flavor stable isn't a bad thing. Um, I think in our case, we've worked really hard on oxygen control. Uh, any beer, regardless if it's hazy or uh, brilliant, uh, will um, age based on things like oxygen, heat, light. Uh, those are the enemies of beer. So we've gone back to our brewing um, roots and we've looked at what can we do in the brew house to minimize oxygen pickup. Because oxygen throughout the process, even though it may not be immediately uh, denigrating the flavor of the beer, it will take a toll. And so even oxygen ingress at the mashing process will lower the, the flavor stability of that beer. And so we purge our malt mill with nitrogen. We uh, blanket uh, um, the grain as we handle it. We strip the oxygen out of our brewing water. Um, practices that are... Uh, uh, nuances, uh, probably, they don't have heat impacts by themselves, but you add up a number of those practices and your beers will uh, taste better uh, after you know, weeks or months uh, uh, longer based on what you've done throughout the whole process. So we strive to do that from day one in our brewing and we continue to, to look at, at ways that we can make better beer and have it taste better longer. Um, so. Uh, you know, freshness is a factor, but also how you handle the beer throughout the whole brewing process and the level of oxygen you pick up during a transfer from fermenter to package, that's a big factor. And so all those little things we can uh, focus on and control at a high level and hopefully produce a beer that's got a lot of character, flavor, and has good shelf stability. One of the things you mentioned at this dinner last night was uh, you're still bottle conditioning uh, when it comes to pale ale, uh, which I find so fascinating because you, you probably don't have to do that. Um, we don't have to do it okay. from a technology. I mean, back in 1980, we sort of did. Right. Um, I welded the fermenters myself, and they weren't able to hold pressure. And so the only way we could carbonate, and we didn't want to artificially carbonate, we still don't, um, was to bottle condition. And so all of our beers out of necessity started out being bottle conditioned. Well, now we have tanks that can hold pressure, and, and we can naturally carbonate in our cellar tanks, and we, we do do that. So our beers are not forced carbonated, and we still allow the fermentation um, process to develop the carbonation in our beers that aren't bottle conditioned. But we do feel that bottle conditioning adds another flavor nuance, another uh, level of, of character to the beer. Um, our pale ale, after uh, two and a half week fermentation and um, settling process, settled most of the yeast out, uh, we did undergo another two weeks of bottle conditioning. So it's a fairly lengthy process, and most brewers today for a complemented beer uh, don't have nearly that many days of fermentation and maturation. Uh, but in order to really keep pale ale uh, true to its roots, we feel bottle conditioning is critical, and we do it for celebration, Bigfoot, uh, pale porter, stout, all those beers that we originally bottle conditioned still bottle And that's a, yeah. that's a good oxygen uh, control measure. So as far as, as flavor stability, uh, yeast sucks up any excess oxygen that may have gotten in during packaging. 
um, and we do feel that gives a, an added ability of uh, a flavor uh, stability, and it, it does change with time, so as the beer matures, uh, it'll uh, evolve a little bit, but uh, we do feel there's a protection uh, value of the yeast. It, it's fair to say that uh, Pale Ale is an iconic American beer. I mean, it's right up there with, with Budweiser. It's right up there with uh, uh, so many of these other brands that have become part of the general consciousness. Um, and and what, what what's amazing to me to think back that only 40 years ago, or just about 40 years, 38 years or so ago, uh, this beer came onto the scene. And you mentioned last night, um, I want to go two ways with this. You mentioned last night... Um, putting a slide deck together for your employees and reminding them of where the company's place in brewing history was. And you, you brought up brands and, and, and beers that had, had sort of disappeared from the shelves. Um, what do you see as uh, Pale's contribution to beer in, in, in general and sort of like the, the importance? Um, and then two, where have we gone with IPA or pale ale since then. I mean, to say nothing of where we are with the New England IPA right now, but there's so many offshoots, and you guys have done them yourselves, and everybody adds everything to to um, uh, to pales and to, to IPAs these days. That your recipe, uh, the you know this original American pale ale, uh, almost seems quaint uh, at some point, and it can be tough to forget the roots. But you know, but where do you see pale's place, um, and and what's your hope for it? And then, how do you take what has happened since then and how far we are removed from that first batch in 1980. Well, I mean, if you look back at the history of beer in America, um, a lot of uh, uh, immigrants did bring their, their traditional styles. And uh, when we were looking at starting Sierra Nevada, we actually went through a bunch of old history books of uh, sort of the, the history of brewing in America. And you'd find uh, breweries that would have, you know, on the wall of the building, ales, porters, stouts, lagers. Uh, so those styles uh, came with some of the immigrants. Uh, ales used to be a big percentage of what was drunk in America. And then uh, the Germanic influences uh, sort of took over, and we ended up uh, sort of shifting to a lighter uh, style with less character. Uh, ales almost disappeared. Uh, as a aspiring home brewer, well, as a home brewer and aspiring uh, commercial brewer back in the late 70s, um, we really looked at what would be something that would give us uh, a distinctive uh, market appeal, something we could handle technically, because uh, as I mentioned, we really didn't have pressurized fermenters back in those days. Uh, and we liked brewing a lot of top fermented beers. Uh, I, I was uh, a fan of stouts and porters and uh, roasted my own grain as a home brewer and brewed many of those, those styles uh, as a home brewer. Um, so I, I think our pale ale set us apart and uh, at the time um, we were one of uh, just a few new brewers in the marketplace and I think most of us were focused on, on top fermented beers. Um, I think there was only one or two early entrants that made larger beers. Part because of you know, wanting to be different, wanting to sort of be out of the mainstream as far as the, the style of beer. Yeah. Um, but then as far as how far we... Actually, I want, I'll come back to that because um, when you started in 1980, there was only a handful of breweries in the country. And there was... Uh, I, it was sort of a low point for beer. About 45. If I, I had the old Brewer's Digest from 1981. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming it was accurate. It listed every licensed brewery in America, and there was uh, less than 45 of, uh, breweries. There were uh, brewing companies. There were a few more breweries because some had multiple plants. But uh, as far as licensed breweries, that was about it in, in operation at the time. 
and there were six of us that opened up between 1976 when New Albion opened uh, and 1981 when that Brewers Digest came out. And there's not many of you left. It's it's you guys. It's Boulder Beer. They're, That's it. Yeah. So us and Boulder, and then you know Anchor was an existing brewery, so they sure. really weren't part of that uh, that craft wave that started. Although Fritz was certainly producing similar style beers back then. Do, do you think it was pale? Was it something else? Was it where you were that allowed you to survive where others didn't? Was it commitment to quality? Was it? You know, I. I uh, look back because uh, I was friends with all those guys yeah. we, we, we knew each other on a first name basis we helped each other out we got well, together there's six of you so yeah I'd hope you know us, first names uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Fritz would have a party every year at, at Anchor and he would invite the uh, pretty much all the breweries uh, small breweries in America and there was you know 10 uh, probably in the mid 80s that would come and he'd have a big barbecue and a party at the Anchor Brewery and uh, I, I remember uh, you know, talking and spending some time with a lot of those folks and um, it was a number of things. Uh, I mean, the marketplace wasn't very receptive. It was a hard sell. Uh, it was a lot of work. There was really uh, very little um, uh, money, uh, not enough to survive in many cases. Um, years later, I talked to Tom DeBacher, who had started DeBacher Brewing. He was a fireman full-time and ran the brewery on the side. Um, uh, Tom Vaughn. Uh, there were a number of early brewers that really struggled to make an existence. So I think it was it was hard. Uh, consistency was a problem as well, though. Uh, a number of those breweries did have micro problems or quality control problems that um, they couldn't at the time uh, either didn't know about, couldn't afford to pull the beer off the market, um, and it did cause some of those brands to disappear. We see that even today, though, with six thousand small breweries in the in the country right now. I mean, it, there's still infections that plague brewers. There's still, uh, you know, wrong recipes uh, that 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 show up, or just, just things that creep in that that put, um, and not in every case, but but there is bad beer that gets out into into the marketplace. As big as you are, you must still worry about what these smaller brewers are doing and how it can impact the overall uh, the overall industry. Yeah, I mean, it's a big concern, and, and um, uh, as part of the Brewers Association, I started the technology group, uh, in part uh, initially focused on draft quality, uh, but it's now expanded into a, a multifaceted uh, uh, bunch of subcommittees that focus on lots of aspects of, of brewing uh, quality and consistency and um, trying to raise that bar for everyone. Uh, you know, there's so much uh, available information today, there's no excuse for a brewer not to uh, be able to find the tools, have the tools, invest in those tools um, in order to, to ensure they have a consistent quality. Um, but with 6,000 brewers, there's uh, varying levels of uh, awareness, uh, technology, focus, uh, passion. And so uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we need to be diligent about as an industry to make sure that we don't have uh, black eyes happening from um, bottles blowing up or other uh, quality concerns. When you first opened, I just want to jump back to this earlier point, but when you first opened, did, did you think that Pale was going to become a flagship? Because you brewed a porter and a stout early on, and those were the first beers that you made, actually, right? Pale was... You made stout. Uh, day one was stout. Uh, day three was pale. Okay. Um, so, um, and when we did stout, just because uh, we were trying out the equipment and we knew that making a robust dark beer may hide a few sins a, a little bit more than, <laughs> than a, a lighter-flavored beer. And we had no intention of selling uh, selling those beers. Um, you know, I think stylistically we realized Pale uh, had the best chance of being our flagship. Um, you know, 
the, the Stouts and Porters were even you know, more out of the mainstream and, and probably harder for most consumers to switch if you're you know, a lager drinker to jumping into drinking a, a hoppy stout, which we brewed. Um, so we, we knew they would have smaller niches. I actually brewed Celebration Ale, um, our first full year of production, 1981, um, dry hopped, um, you know, IPA style. And that was a style I loved as well, and, and uh, it was something we, um, we continued to do and have uh, continued to innovate around. So these days, though, Pale has just gone so far beyond what you started with in 1980. And, and I look at who wins at GABF in that category every year, and the beers that, that, that are presenting are so far removed flavor-wise, you know, the, the, even just IBU, even just hop content, just ev- everything else as well. We've gotten so far away from, um, you know, some of these, these classics, and now we're seeing IPAs that have all manners of ingredients in them, from fresh fruit to coffee to everything in between, and you guys make all of these. Um, do, do you ever worry, though, about some of these classic styles losing their soul a little bit, or is this part of the natural evolution of beer? You know, I think it's a natural evolution of beer in some case, but, um, you know, whether it's being driven by the consumer or the brewer or both, um, as far as pushing the boundaries, it's a, it is an American trait to uh, go big, um, and, you know, we're seeing that happen in, in beer. But I think there's also people who um, are going to come back and come back to uh, styles that are more drinkable, more profitable. Um, you know, our IPA was, or our pale ale was considered an extreme beer back in the early days. Um, today, it's probably considered a session beer in some people's <laughs> minds. Um, you know, we still see our pale ale, you know, wins gold medals um, around the globe as well. It's not going to stand out in a, a pale ale tasting at the GABF because you're right, the, the pale ales that are entered in those categories today are far cry from sort of the, the classic pale ale that we pioneered with uh, moderate hopping and moderate alcohol. Does, does that, like, you know, bother you at all that it's, it's moved so far away? Well, we've seen uh, some of the beers that have won in the pale ale categories are really IPAs, and they, some of them are marketed as IPAs, so it's a little bit disingenuous. Uh, uh, yeah, if you want to stand out in, in a category, you know, being on the extreme end of it is, is probably going to be a help. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're not going to change our pale ale to, you know, change with how the market changes. We, we're going to introduce new beers to satisfy people who want to drink those styles. But we really think the pale ale is still an you know, amazing beer, and, and you know, I drink it regularly, and we have consumers that's what they prefer out of all of our lineup. So, uh, you know, some people's tastes uh, you know, aren't as extreme and do want to have a beer that they can have two or three or four of uh, in a session and uh, you know, enjoy the evening with, with friends talking. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the R&D beers, and, and I, I, I think that when you talk to brewers, or when I talk to brewers uh, across the country, the thing that they're always amazed at is the beers that Sierra Nevada puts out uh, on a national scale. And, and Ultravez a few years ago, Ultravez, I'm sorry, uh, a, few, a few years ago, rolling out a, uh, a national Goza was really kind of remarkable uh, for what was still then an obscure style and you could argue is still kind of an obscure style um, uh, these days and that, that was taking a huge risk on your part uh, I, I imagine to it was a gamble yep. yeah and we uh, you know, we thought it was going to be a little bit of a gamble and maybe we were too too ahead of the, 
of the curve on that. We actually put in a huge amount of infrastructure to make those beers. We uh, built lactic cellars, so we have separate fermentation halls at both breweries uh, where we naturally produce uh, a lactic brew. Um, so it was quite an investment, and, and we you know, had a vision that we thought that style would be one that would grow um, you know, as people appreciate uh, sours and, and more tart beers. Um, we're using those lactic cultures in other ways, so uh, some of that natural lactic fermentation is showing up in beers that um, don't have any mention of, of uh, you know, stylistically a gozer or something, so we're using a little bit of a tart um, wort in order to, uh, to add some flavor nuances to some other beers as well. But for a, a brewery your size, so million plus barrels uh, of beer a year, it must be harder to be proactive rather than uh, reactive, right? To see what's happening on a smaller scale and then uh, saying, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's go do that too. So, so, but a lot of the beers that you guys put out and that you have put out um, seem to be just ahead of the curve. Um, and, I, you know, the, the No Middle Ground uh, Coffee IPA that came out, you know, I was part of the uh, uh, beer camp team that did that, uh, you know, years ago. Yeah. Um, and just forward-thinking things like that, like Keller Weiss a few years ago um, as well, which is still one of my favorite beers that you guys make. Um, yeah, sort actually, of Weiss, I envisioned brewing that uh, about 25 years ago, truthfully. Um, I was uh, in Europe... Uh, buying some equipment and I fell in love with that style and I came back to my team and I want to say it was probably in the late 80s and um, wanted to do a uh, traditional beer like our Keller Weiss and I, I was uh, shut down a bit by my, my team um, and I, I do sometimes listen um, saying, geez, it's not going to go over in this country. Those, those flavor nuances, the, you know, the, the clove, that's not a style that's going to find wide, uh, wide favor. And so we shelved it and, and produced a wheat beer that uh, had a more conventional flavor profile with the top fermented yeast that didn't express all that uh, character. So it was something I really uh, felt strongly about, but not enough to sort of take that risk at the time. But when you have taken the risk, and I, I, has there been, has there ultimately been reward, and maybe not even sales-wise, but is it just, is, isn't it the nature of the brewers to always just be trying to, to, to steer the public towards new flavors? I think Keller Weiss is a prime example of, of one that uh, you know, gets lots of accolades as well in tastings. Uh, you know, we put it up against uh, most German uh, beers of the same style, and we've done well. Um, but as far as market success, it's not hugely successful. But it's a beer style I, I drink regularly. Um, I'll order those at our, at our pubs quite often. Uh, you know, it's, it's refreshing. It's uh, uh, not too high in alcohol. It's, it's a great beer to sit down and enjoy. And it's in North Carolina, it, it uh, can be our number two seller out of all the beers we have there in that marketplace. Uh, it finds uh, great favor because it is uh, not too flavor intensive. Hell aside, if there is one beer that you guys make that uh, you're going to be... Uh stocked in your fridge for, for the rest of your days, uh, what would it be? You know, I'd say seasonally a little bit, it varies. Um, so Celebration is one that um, you know, uh, holds a place in my heart, and, and, uh, and when we're brewing Celebration, it's what I mainly drink. Um, okay. Um, you mentioned being in Europe and buying equipment. Uh, you've rescued a lot of 
copper from uh, various parts of Europe, various parts of, of the world. Um, and you've also forged a connection with uh, brewers and brewing traditions overseas. Uh, there was a few years ago that you were doing the, the Abbey style ales uh, with the with the monks not too far still from. Still doing those. Okay. Yeah, still doing those from. Uh, some Belgium influence there, and those have been fun to do. Uh, we've worked with, uh, actually, the Gutman Brewery is where our uh, Keller White cheese came from, um, and a brewery that we've got a good relationship and uh, is famous for that style. And we've uh, worked with Regala and Oktoberfest and um, quite a few other breweries as well. Well, and that's the interesting thing on the Oktoberfest beers, is where it's going, is you've been working with family breweries um, uh, over in Germany uh, to bring out a new Oktoberfest um, each year. Tradition is still important, and, and I think that we forget our history sometimes when we're always looking for the next big shiny thing, but you, you've been able to, to kind of keep the, the brewery focused on on the past, on the traditions, while looking forward. But, but what, what's the importance there of tradition? Uh, you know, I think tradition is, is important from, uh, from a lot of reasons. I mean, certainly on the brewing heritage and knowledge and um, styles. And, and uh, as you mentioned, we've worked with a lot of family-owned breweries in, in Europe as well, so that's fun to do. Um, you know, for us, having those connections opens our eyes, uh, opens their eyes. Uh, we've uh, you know, found not all German brewers are open to the concept of uh, collaborating with an American brewer, but... Uh, many of the ones that are, um, you know, have great brewing traditions and, and really a lot of knowledge about beer, and they bring um, you know, old ingredients that may be new to us um, and processes. Uh, so we've learned a lot, and I think some of the brewers have as well. So it's, it's really a two-way collaboration. Um, a lot of those German breweries are, are looking for, you know, things that will make their businesses stronger, even though some of them may be four or 500 years old right now or even older. Um, they still need to stay relevant, and so uh, those partnerships have really brought something to both sides. For your 30th anniversary, you did a series of beers with your beer heroes, uh, Fritz Maytag, Charlie Papazian, Fred Eckhart, who is a, a great writer, the dean of beer writers in the U.S., and, and Jack McAuliffe, the yep. original microbrewer. Um, these days, and last night at this dinner, we heard one brewer after another get up and just sort of marvel that they were sitting in the same room as you, and uh, you being responsible for their career, or inspiring your beers, inspiring careers, and I think that there's a, a, a whole swath of generation of brewers and, and beer drinkers uh, who will say the, the exact same thing. Um, what's the question you get most often from young brewers? Because you must, you must seek out a lot of advice, um, or you must be sought out yeah. for advice. Um, you know, a lot of them um, weren't even born when I was started out, <laughs> so I think there's a, a little bit of how did you do this, um, you know, what was it like, uh, what were your challenges. Um, they're, they're much different today than they were back then. Uh, as I mentioned last night, you know, for us it was educating the, the retailers, getting an account to put your beer on, on tap was really hard. Uh, we got some distributors lined up um, probably our second year in business. We, we self-distributed ourselves, or we still do, but that's how we started. And as we started to expand into the Bay Area and other markets, um, you know, just convincing somebody to put your beer on, on tap or to put it on the, the shelf uh, was not easy. And uh, we had uh, one employee who was our salesman and helped out around the brewery, Steve Harrison, and I remember him coming back from spending four or five days in the Bay Area, day after day getting shut down, you know, maybe he'd get one placement. Um, you know, 
really, really tough sell. So I think for us, those early days are, are different than the challenges that the brewer faces today. Right. Not that they're, um, you know, they're, they're less challenges, but I mean, today it's you know, get, still getting attention from wholesalers and retailers because there's so many choices. Um, you don't have the educating consumer uh, issues as, as much as we did. I mean, back then, craft beer was an unknown. Today, most uh, consumers, I think, have heard of craft beer or certainly heard of so a lot of the questions around, you know, how did we do it? How did we grow our business? Um, how did we stay independent? Um, Independence—that's—that's uh, that's the the key word these days. Uh, we've sort of moved away from craft a little bit, and we're we're talking about independence. Uh, so essentially, meaning not owned by uh, a larger brewery like Heineken or ABI or uh, and, and any of the others out there. Um, <coughs> On your packaging for the last couple of years, since you brought out your, your original uh, uh, partner in the in the brewery, uh, you've been saying family owned and operated. Uh, and now uh, I saw on the can last night, it's family owned, operated, and argued over. Um, let's get to the argued over part first. Um, so I've got uh, uh, my daughter and uh, son. I have three children. Uh, two of them are involved in the business, and uh, my daughter's in. Chico and works with me, and my son's out in North Carolina, um, but makes many trips to Chico as well. Uh, so it's a family dynamic, so we talk about a, a lot of aspects of the business, and um, you know, for years I was pretty much the dictator, and it was my way, and, and um, I didn't have a lot of outside influences. Uh, now that the family's involved, and, and our goal is to have the brewery be multi-generational, um, they've got differences of opinion from me as well as uh, from each other, and so we have good discussions around uh, direction and, and uh, leadership of the company. Not that we argue, but there, there are times when my, my team's sitting around and it's the, my two kids and, and me debating something, um, and it's, I think, overall a healthy situation. But I think most people who have families and family businesses can um, relate to the fact that sometimes uh, not everybody is totally in agreement on everything. And it is the plan that the brewery will go to, to your kids, to the next generation? Um, if they're willing and able, um, that would be the goal. They're uh, you know, certainly involved. And we've got other management uh, outside of the family, and um, they're playing a, a major role in the direction of the company as well. But uh, it would be nice to have uh, it be a multi-generational business. I visit brewers in Europe that are on their 15th or 20th generation, and um, they've had their ups and downs, but some of them are, are still doing quite well. Is there a scenario where you think the brewery could go to another company to be it another craft brewer, be it a, a larger brewing company, be it like a larger outside entity? We've seen some of the uh, uh, financial firms come in and, and, and make major investments and sort of take over brewing operations. Is that is that door totally closed or is there always... Well, I, uh, you know, the future is unknown, so it's hard to say what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, our intent and our goal, we've had plenty of opportunities to, yeah. you know, sell the business to uh, all of those kinds of entities, large brewers to foreign brewers to venture funds. Um, you know, many of the brewers that do have those partners today, uh, some of them, it was forced, uh, you know, not, not due to their their plan, but they got into a financial situation where they, you know, too much leverage or you know, needed uh, additional resources to you know, grow what they thought was the way they wanted to grow. Um, I've talked to many of them uh, over the years and um, I think uh, people who have gone public who have taken in 
uh, venture money, um, have over leveraged with banks. Uh, most of them have regrets. I don't, I don't think uh, you know, it's, it's turned out uh, the way they envisioned in all those cases. In some cases, maybe it has, maybe it was the right strategy for them. Um, I, I'm not putting anybody down for making those choices. That's, no, of you know, course. That, that they've made their business decisions and maybe uh, well within what they planned. As, as somebody, though, who is, I mean, you're also a, a champion of this industry and you're friends with a lot of these people. Um, I think when, when Anchor sold a few years ago and then again uh, recently, that felt personal for a lot of folks uh, because they were considered to be the original craft brand because uh, Fritz Maytag had done so much to help your generation of brewers out and, and, and countless others along there. Um, do, do you see it that way? Do you, do, is it, when you remove the business from it, do, do you go back in time in your mind a little bit and not part of your childhood dies, but like it's... Well, you know, Fritz did what he thought was the, the you know, the, the right legacy for his business. Um, it, I don't think worked out exactly how he envisioned it. I don't think he, he anticipated that um, there would be another sale of the business um, after uh, the initial sale. Um, he didn't have a family member, I think, that was in a position to take the brewery over and, and uh, keep it multi-generational. Um, I know he kept his uh, cheese company that was uh, his grandfather, I think, had started. Um, yeah. And that, I think, was going to be his family legacy more so than the brewery. Um, you know, the brewing business uh, is challenging on a lot of fronts. And, and uh, you know, if you don't have anybody who really is in line to steward it and has all the resources, um, you've got to make a decision what to do. Fritz was in his 70s. And, on the business front of things, uh, removing the beer for a second, uh, what's the biggest challenge that your company faces? You know, the marketplace today has is, is got a lot of headwinds. and um, the, the consolidation at the top um, certainly creates challenges for distribution, for retail shelf space, for you know, the ability to get your beer in front of consumers, uh, as well as you know, from the bottom with just the sheer number of beers and brands that are on the shelves, uh, that creates challenges as well. So uh, we're in a very competitive industry. The brewing industry always has been. Uh, we're at a unique place right now um, with uh, you know, still lots of entrants coming in and uh, lots of surplus capacity across the you know, many parts of the segment. Uh, the big growers have too much capacity and some of the mid-sized and regional brewers uh, have built capacity in anticipation of you know, continued double-digit growth, which hasn't been happening, and so uh, the next few years will be interesting to watch. Mills River came online at just the right time, right? You guys were one of the, you led the charge, uh, it seems, to the East Coast. It, 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 it would be much more difficult today to pull that off, given the marketplace, right? Uh, definitely. So in 2010 uh, is when we decided to build the Mills River, and we had been thinking about it for years. Uh, we were really uh, pretty... Uh, over capacity in Chico. We were brewing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it was really stressful little operation. And we, we had seen the handwriting on the wall for years about uh, carbon footprint and logistics and shipping and, and having a single West Coast shipping point and being a national brand. Uh, so we knew we had to do something, and, and so we had planned on a Mills River or a you know, at least an eastern expansion for quite a few years and had put it on the back burner many times uh, just due to what we considered the complexities and challenges of having two sites and 
keeping the culture together and uh, all the, uh, the issues that uh, being on two coasts uh, create. Um, but by 2010, we, we thought it was time. We started the site search. We broke ground in 2012 uh, in River. Um, I know other brewers who have announced um, geographic expansions <laughs> have put them on the back burner. From, yeah. from what I can tell, and yep. they, they probably will, will never happen. Uh, or not too many of them. Because the marketplace changed so fast in such a short period it of time. Did, yeah. uh, both the competitive landscape as well as just the sheer volume growth that we were seeing across the segment. Um, both of those have, have been some headwinds for a lot of aspiring national players. It's interesting. I've, I've been to Mills River twice now, and each time I, I've just shown up, and, and there's always brewers who are coming in. It's it's a pilgrimage, I think, for, for a lot of folks as well, in the same way that, that, that your brewery in Chico is. Um, and it's hard for brewers to suppress smiles when they walk through, because it is... Uh, just a, a perfect brewery on, on just about every level, and it, it Malt Disney World is the is the nickname that I, I guess some folks have given it, um, and it's it's certainly worth even just for for, for a fan to, to come through. Um, but Platinum Lead certification uh, for for the brewery, and and people sometimes forget that brewing is a uh, a huge consumer of energy. Uh, the brewing process, uh, and there's a lot of waste associated with it as well. And and from the early days, you've been very environmentally conscious um, as, as to how the brewery is perceived and how uh, the brewery acts um, as well. Why? I know why it's important, but I want to hear from you. Um, why go for Platinum Lead? Why uh, um, you, You've installed pieces of equipment. I, I know out in Chico you have your hot rod. Um, uh, there's this giant composting machine that uh, when I was talking to, to some of your employees uh, uh, back in the day, back then, they're like, Nobody like nobody needs this. You know the the, the cost of this is, a, is is insane. But Ken wanted it, and so we we got it. And uh, and they say it with this sort of begrudging admiration, um, as it were. But but you've you, this is important to you, right? This is this is a personal personal push. You know, a, as we've grown, uh, I've tried to look at what we can do that is uh, you know, more sustainable, uses resources better. The hot rod's an interesting one. Uh, we were throwing away, you know, we had a big restaurant, we were you know, dumping uh, um, lots of tubs of uh, you know, lettuce scraps and plate, plate scraps. And um, I've been a composter at home for years. I've had uh, worms and compost piles and chickens uh, for the last 40 years. And so for me it was like, geez, we should be able to do something better with, with this. And I started investigating composting systems and, and ended up with a hot rod. Um, it was one of those investments that did not have an ROI, um, but uh, t- today, actually, our community in the state of California is starting to force composting of restaurant waste. There's just no place in our community to get it done. Um, we're, we're really uh, a bit ahead of the curve on, on that uh, one, but um, it, yeah, it makes no sense to landfill things that have a lot of uh, you know, nutritional value for you know, worms, which then can get, go... Uh, fertilized gardens and, and so it just seems like we closed the, the circle. In Mills River we had the opportunity to really build um, you know, the, the dream brewery and looking at how to do it in a sustainable fashion both on the construction side. Uh, we didn't start out thinking we were going to get LEED Platinum. Um, we wanted to be LEED certified. We were initially going for silver and then thought well we, let's see if we can get to gold. And then as we went through the process, we started getting closer and closer to having uh, a platinum certification. So then 
um, midway through the project, let's let's go all the way. Let's see if we can really get to platinum. And um, it was quite an exercise. Uh, not easy. Uh, not inexpensive. Um, probably, uh, you know, in hindsight, whether or not I would have jumped through all the hurdles to get to platinum, I don't know. But um, uh, you know, we're uh, pleased and, and proud that we did it. But uh, it did add a lot of complexity to the project. And, Required uh, uh, a level of diligence on the construction side and use of materials and you know, paint and uh, carpeting and, and we would have gotten there easier. We actually um, uh, cut down some trees on the site. Uh, we ended up um, milling, kiln drying, and using all those trees back in the construction. Uh, but as it turns out they did not count because uh, they weren't certified by the. the uh, steward council, so uh, we, we lost points in areas that we thought we were doing a pretty good thing by you know, utilizing all the wood from the site in the construction, but uh, that was uh, not something that was easy to get certified through the lead process. Not every small brewery is going to have those resources or, or, or even have the inclination, but what's one or two things that some of these other smaller breweries of the 6,000 that are out there these days, or even home brewers can do? Uh, to just start making a better impact on the environment around them? I mean, there's a ton you can do that it, that's very inexpensive, and, and I've given many talks over the years uh, uh, around these subjects, and you know, things as simple as putting your uh, cooling and heating and air conditioning systems on a, a really a regular PM process so that you're you know, cleaning condensers, you're you know, looking at, at, at really simple things that might... Uh, save you 10, 15, 20% of your energy costs that don't cost you anything. I mean, a little bit of labor and a little bit of focus. Um, air compressors are a big source of, of energy, and a lot of people have air leaks all over their facilities. Uh, I've been to many uh, commercial plants that you can hear air hissing all over the place. Mm -hmm. They're running 50 or 100 or even more uh, horsepower worth of air compressors and losing 10, 20, 30% of that. Um, so there's some real basics. Lighting, obviously, today, a lot of options with super-efficient lighting, um, uh, using heat, um, recovered heat efficiently, uh, lots of places to capture waste heat. Uh, again, air compressors generate a lot of heat. You can heat buildings with that waste heat. Uh, we have lots of heat recapture stuff that, you know, there is some initial cost, but uh, paybacks would be great in the long term. I heard a story a couple of years ago of uh, when I was out in Chico and how you show up at the brewery pretty early most mornings and uh, would go and, and grab the, uh, the maintenance log and uh, see if there's one or two things you could do before the, the staff came in. Um, do, you, do you still walk around the brewery? Do you still, uh, you know, touch the equipment? and, and oh, yeah. yeah. Much to the chagrin of some of my staff, but uh, no, I, I jump in on all sorts of uh, projects and uh, I still am active in, in the engineering side of the brewery. We have an engineering department of both breweries with really talented people, um, but I still... That's the kind of stuff I love. You know, brewing is an art and a science, uh, and it's a lot of uh, problem solving. And for me, that's that's where the where the heart of my uh, my passion comes down to. You know, whether it's problem solving around a beer or brewing or raw materials or a piece of equipment, uh, I still like getting in there and, and trying to help. Is that a it, it must ground you in some ways as well, right? Because running a, two large breweries in, in, in the way that you do, uh, your day could just be filled with phone calls and emails and handshake meetings and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
is, is there a Zen-like component to getting back into the brew house? You know, the, the uh, for me, staying current on brewing and brewing science and what's happening in the industry uh, is still really important. So I read a lot. Um, I subscribe to uh, lots of journals and uh, industry information, and I try to stay current on the science of brewing, the technology of brewing, um, as well as sort of what's happening in the industry. And, and I think if I lose that, then I lose the connection to sort of how I got here and, and what's uh, kept me going all these years. On the, on the science of brewing topic, um, Sierra Nevada has been instrumental in hop research and putting forward um, uh, uh, research grants and working with growers to, to really move um, hops forward. Um, where, where are things headed in hop research? Where we're, we're we've, still, got, we've come such a far away in a short period of time. Yeah, we have. Uh, we're, we're still very involved in that, and, and we've got uh, we have a raw materials team, and, and uh, we've got a couple of folks there who are passionate about uh, hops and barley, and so we're involved in uh, American Barley Association, American Barley Association, the Canadian Association. Um, we're working with maltsters on some R&D projects, so we've got actually direct collaborations uh, on killing projects. Uh, we've got still pretty sophisticated lab resources, so we've got gas chromatographs and things focused that uh, really help us uh, help the, the growers as well as, as some of the malt breeders and maltsters. Um, we, we like the science of beer, and uh, hops obviously are, are part of our DNA. Um, so we'll continue to work directly with growers. We're always doing nano brews. That's part of where our nano brewery comes in. We're, we're working with uh, a lot of numbered uh, hop varieties, doing uh, hop research pretty much every every week. We're doing something hop varieties. You mentioned you know the, the art and science of beer, and and I think that the art gets a lot of the focus, a lot of the time, but that the science is often uh, overlooked by the consumer. Um, it's overlooked by some brewers, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> as well that I talk to that you know don't want to be bothered um, to dig into the science. They they think they can be artists and and use the you know materials without really understanding some aspects of it, and that can be done to some degree. But as we talked about earlier, having best practices to make that beer taste great for you know, days, weeks, or months longer uh, by paying attention to things like oxygen pickup or, or handling or iron levels in the water or in the equipment or copper. You know, some of those trace nuances of science uh, do affect your overall flavor stability um, and making a beer that's going to taste the same batch after batch. We have a more savvy consumer base these days, and so when there are brewers that aren't paying attention to this. Um, do you think that can hurt the overall industry? Do you think that we'll start to... I, I, I hate talking about a shakeout or a bubble burst or things like that, but we do have a more savvy consumer base these days. And there's certain things that certain brewers are doing that will put them out of business just because that's the natural uh, progression yeah. of things. Yeah, again, the brewing business is very competitive, and I think the consumer is much more savvy. And if you... Um, you know, miss the mark uh, time after time, or if the consumer has a bad experience because you know, last time I had it tasted great, this time it doesn't taste so good. Um, you know, it, it will have a, a, a certain um, you know, attrition uh, that's caused just based on consistency and quality that the consumer begins to expect. Um, you know, having an artist's approach where the beer can be different every single time 
only goes so far until somebody really finds something they don't like, and then it becomes uh, you know brand killing. So you know, I think um, being able to produce what you want to produce the, 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 the same time and time again is a you know, part of the brewer's art and skill. Uh, and we sometimes look at wineries as, as having a scapegoat. Well, the grapes weren't as good this year. Uh, you know, as a brewer. Your job, in a lot of ways, is to try to, you know, take those raw materials and, and uh, use them in a way where you can gain some consistency and, and reproducibility, and not blame uh, if you're not turning out on the hop crop or the barley crop. Um, the consumer may accept that, but I think a lot of consumers uh, don't want to accept the product that's changing every time. As we start to wrap up here, I want to ask you, what's your hope for beer? You know, we've come so far, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. is, is still uh, leading the charge, I think, and we will probably continue to lead the charge on a global basis as far as innovation, uh, creativity. Um, you know, the consumer is uh, either coming along or driving a lot of that. Um, you know, we, we heard last night at the dinner that you, know, you got places like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, and San Diego where, you know, one-third of the beer or more is craft beer. And, that would have been something when I started that I would have uh, said that was impossible. Um, so we've uh, we've really changed the dynamic of beer in America, and, and I continue to see that uh, you know, happening and, and furthering um, you know, around the, the whole country and around the globe. Ken Grossman is the president and the owner of the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company with breweries in Chico, California and Mills River, North Carolina. Uh, you can read more about uh, the story of the brewery. We didn't get into nearly enough of the history. Uh, in his book called Beyond the Pale, the story of Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, uh, where fine books are sold. Um, Ken, thank you so much for sitting down. This was, uh, this was a real privilege. It's been a pleasure and great seeing you again. And- Look forward to crossing paths in the future. Absolutely. You can learn more about uh, Sierra Nevada and brewing in general by visiting beerandbrewing.com. There you can subscribe to the magazine, subscribe to this podcast, uh, and learn more about how to be a better home brewer. Uh, you can also reach out to me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beerandbrewing.com, or follow the conversation on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And we will be back again next week with an all-new episode. Thank you so much for listening. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by GEA. Around the world, every second liter of beer is brewed with the aid of systems and processes from GEA because their solutions address even the smallest details of the brewing process. GEA's range of services include everything from engineering, manufacturing, delivery, installation, automation, servicing, and more. At GEA, their goal is to help brewers make more beer of the highest quality in a cost-efficient and sustainable manner. To learn more, visit GEA.com and be sure to follow the GEA Craft Brewing page on Facebook. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.